You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from student minister Andrew Beal. So I am someone who likes organization and I like lists, especially when it comes to myself. Uh, when I say I like making lists, just kind of, it kind of sometimes, depending on the list, kind of helps me take kind of stock of my life, see what I'm into. And it's just as simple as I like keeping track of like, what are my, you know, five favorite movies right now? Who are my five favorite, you know, musicians or artists? Just kind of things like that. Just kind of take stock of like, all right, this is a good representation of who I am right now in this moment. And it also just happens to be uh, kind of fun for me. Uh, it's also kind of like a question I like just um, if I'm getting to know you. Like on so many road trips, uh, it's pretty typical that I used to ask things like, so imagine you're, on, you're going on the desert island and you only have, you know, room for five, we'll say, you know, albums or five movies or five, you know, whatever. And I like going through that just because whatever someone's response is, it just tells me I feel so much about them, so much more than just a simple, hey, tell me about yourself question typically would. And sometime in the last couple of years, uh, that the spirit of that you know island question they're like asking has kind of morphed, and people have started to ask, uh, you know, like, hey, so they've, they've been using Mount Rushmore. We know Mount Rushmore, that national monument up in South Dakota. We got Washington and Jefferson and Teddy Roosevelt and Lincoln's face up there. So we've taken that, and they're like, hey, who is on your Mount Rushmore of? And it's fill in the blank. So it can be you know all-time great basketball players or comedians or whatever you would like it to be. Who is on your Mount Rushmore of this? So you get to learn about a lot of people, and also you get to hear a lot of different arguments about who really gets a, who has earned a place on one of those spots. Uh, just as an example, I was, uh, I meet with a half dozen high school students uh, on Sunday mornings at eight o'clock, and we were kind of going through Mount Rushmore, and we decided, hey, like, uh, Who's on, what's on the Mount Rushmore of like places to eat in Springboro? So collectively, we came up with, it was uh, Highland Stag, The K, Roosters, and Waffle House. So those are the four Mount Rushmore places that you have to visit in Springboro. So we can take that question, that concept, and you can do it, you know, for anything. For even right now, you can kind of like, what is on the Mount Rushmore of your life? Just what are like four things that, uh, you know, make up who you are? And it can be items, you know, things. It can be people, relationships, experiences, anything you want. Just if someone is going to understand and really fully understand and get who you are as a person, what is on the Mount Rushmore of your life? And we can take that even a step further, whether or not God or Jesus made it on your Mount Rushmore, and just that very quick uh, hypothetical, uh, we can take that concept into our spiritual lives. Or, you know, when it comes to following Jesus, what are like the four most important things as far as a successful, fulfilling, spiritually fruitful relationship with Jesus? If we were to put that on our own personal Mount Rushmore. Some might throw out, well, you know, first place, you know, has to be, you know, I have to have prayer up there, taking in the word. Some might prioritize uh, serving other people, be that, uh, you know, anonymously, be that financially or just, you know, hands-on sort of thing. Uh, some people are really into fasting uh, for some reason, uh, but they would consider that, you know, it has to be up there because just the amount of spiritual growth and intimacy with Jesus you get there, it has to be up there. And we can fill those four spots with any number of things. And some common items might be up there. But it kind of gets this kind of thinking toward the question, when it comes to following Jesus, that being like the most important aspect of our lives, and for us to grow in that and be joyful in that, what are going to take those top spots? 
just kind of giving it away now, what I came to say this morning, what I want everyone leaving with is this, that the God who loves you wants to hold the most important place in your life. The God who loves you wants to hold the most important place in your life. And we're starting a brand new four-week series this morning. Uh, we're kind of diving into the Ten Commandments. We're actually going to be going through all ten over the summer, but we're going to take like a two-week break sometime uh, in July, I think first half of July. So the next four weeks, we have this series called From the Mountain, the mountain being Mount Sinai. And we're going through you know, each of the next four weeks, beginning this morning, uh, the first four commandments that God gives to Moses and through Moses, the Israelite people, uh, through what we call and know as the Ten Commandments. Now, before I I jump in fully, uh, I need to give a disclaimer. Sometime last year, I think it was spring or summer, we had a guest preacher in. His name was Steve Carr. He did a fantastic job, and we'll certainly have him back again, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, he and I, you know, we've, we're, we're good acquaintances, and uh, he sends out like this uh, monthly email. You can subscribe to something. It's, he calls it a thought thread, so he sends out like, hey, here's an article to check out. Here's something, uh, some cultural trend that, you know, maybe needs a spiritual response to, but he also throws in what he just calls, hey, here's a free sermon that I have outlined, and so I get his uh, monthly email. I got it on Tuesday morning. I click it and say, hey, free sermon, and the text was Exodus 19. I'm like, oh, that's my text for this weekend. So I took a look and I went through, I was like, and here's where, here's where I came out. Sometimes other people just, I don't know, can say things better than you ever can. So full disclaimer, about two thirds of what I'm sharing this morning comes from Mr. Steve Carr. So if if by chance you don't like any of it, then (laughs) that comes from the Steve part. So we're going to go right into Exodus 19, but just a real quick, before we dive into where the, where the Israelites are going, uh, we need to know where they've been. So just a really, really quick catch-up. Uh, Exodus tells a story of God, through Moses, uh, releasing the Israelites from uh, about 400 years of slavery. So that is their identity up to this point. They only know how to be slaves. They only know how to be under the uh, submission and oppression of other people. They have never been a people of themselves. And they've never had a culture of them for themselves. It's always been borrowed from the Egyptians. So really, that is all they know. And we could even spend, I'm sure, weeks just kind of going through what it means just to not have your own sense of identity. So through a number of circumstances I'll mention in a moment, uh, they are released. And they go out into the Egyptian desert, and they are free for the first time in generation upon generation upon generation. And uh, they're out there for about two or three months when... Uh, they get to Mount Sinai, and God decides to speak up. So, uh, Exodus 19, verse 1. Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Now, up to this point, the relationship between God and these people has been entirely one-sided. 
you know, Exodus opens up, you know, we meet Moses and uh, around the age of 40, he murders some guy. And so he goes into the desert in exile, a self-imposed exile for about 40 years. And God tells him essentially, hey, go back to Egypt. I'm going to use you to talk to Pharaoh to release all of my people. You are my chosen instrument to do this, to free my people from their bondage. And so to help out, you know, God certainly does his part. God unleashes plagues. And if you do some study, each one of those 10 plagues is like a, a direct attack on one of the gods of Egypt. And we know he parts the Red Sea through Moses. And once they're out there, every morning the Israelites, they wake up and there is food, fresh food from heaven that God has provided. And God establishes freedom for all these people. It's two to three months of this. And up to this point, God has been doing, you know, all the blessing, all the giving, all of the loving. It's been a one-sided relationship. And up until this point, God has not asked for a thing in return. But now they've been out there for a little while, and now God is after a response from these people that he's just freed. And he reminds them of this one-sidedness, all he's done for them up to this point. One thing that we're going to get into with this Ten Commandments series is, uh, as we were kind of discussing this as a staff, uh, whenever we hear the phrase Ten Commandments, even if we've been church-going people for our entire lives, uh, if you're like me, you can have an almost immediately negative connotation. Even if you love God, love Jesus, he's the sin of your life. One reason is uh, no one likes to be commanded to do anything, and also just, uh, you know, culture provides a stigma to some certain phrases biblically, and Ten Commandments are kind of like, uh, we just kind of have that attitude sometimes, at least initially. One reason we want to do Ten Commandments is we wanted to kind of cast this in an accurate light, a biblically accurate light, and accurately reflecting uh, God's heart, that all of these commandments that we'll call are a fantastic and the greatest expression of love that God could give his people. Anytime he sets out, hey, this being part of my covenant, uh, I'm loving you in a very specific way that you need. So these aren't rules per se. Think of them more as this is what love looks like if they obey it. One just kind of to kind of get us uh, getting this image of God's love. He uses that phrase that he saved them on eagles' wings, and this can be read in Deuteronomy 32. It says, He found them in a desert land, in an empty howling wasteland. He surrounded them and watched over them. He guarded them as he would guard his own eyes, like an eagle that rouses her chicks and hovers over her young. So he spread his wings to take them up and carry them safely on his pinions. The Lord alone guided them, and they followed no foreign gods. So after all this, God asked for something rather simple in all that he's done. All he's after is obedience. In verse 5, he says that he wants his people to, quote, obey me and keep my covenant. And this is a phrase or at least a theme that we're going to see uh, throughout this entire text and in, throughout this entire series. You know, obeying him and keeping his covenant, it's the entire basis for these Ten Commandments as we know them. So God wants his people to obey him, yes, but it's a, a request that kind of comes with a bit of a, a background. You know, we know that this obedience is a giving back of all that God has done for them up to this point. And there's another beautiful word, a beautiful term in verse 5. Uh, some translation have it, treasured possession. In what I read, uh, he says that he wants his people to be his special treasure. Now, uh, there's this Hebrew word called segula. And by the way, I'm going to throw out like, I don't know, four to five-ish Hebrew words, which means there might be a lot of s and <laughs> So, um, you first rose, splash zone. That's where you are, so... Uh, be warned, some Jewish words coming your way. Uh, but that treasured possession or special treasure, that is the word segula. And it has a couple connotations, uh, at least at that time in world history. The first was, uh, it was sometimes a political term. Think of it as like between a master and a slave, you know, this treasured possession. But also, 
Uh, in other literature, it was a term that was very romantic in nature. Uh, today we might translate Segula to, uh, you are my beloved. <clears throat> so if you look at you know, kind of context, especially where we're going, it seems to have more of this meaning of uh, this romantic relationship usage. Put another way, out of all the nations, God wants Israel to be his beloved. You know, kind of put more, uh, being affirmed, uh, we can see this in Deuteronomy 7. It says, you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his beloved. Out of everyone else on earth, you are his beloved. That's what he is after. So yes, there is this romantic connotation between God and his people, and that romantic metaphor can be a little bit awkward, but ultimately it is a, just a recognition of God's love for his people. And taken just on the, the human, you know, person-to-person level, segula is also a term most commonly used in reference to a marital relationship. So look at this as God loving us in this inseparable bond, much like a marriage is. Moving on, verse 7. So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. Then the Lord told Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their clothing. Be sure they are ready on the third day, for on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as all the people watch. So in these verses, the Israelites are told to do two things. One, to consecrate themselves, and two, to wash. Now, both of these aspects are from this Jewish uh, tradition or custom or rite called mikveh. That's another Jewish word that's fun to say. And uh, a mikveh, think of it, it's just like a collection of water. Think of it as like a very small pool. Um, Even today and back then, it's a mainstay in Jewish life. If you go to Israel, you'll find, you know, any number of, you know, very small pools for this for this particular tradition. So how this would look is a person would, uh, was to strip naked so their entire body was one with the water. So, you know, taking a bath for our purposes today. Now the question asks, now why exactly would you know, Jewish people partake in this sort of a ceremony? Why would they do this? It was, at least for them, it was entirely to prepare themselves for worship. The Jewish people, they divided their world into two things. Uh, things were either clean or things were unclean. You know, today we like to divide things between good and bad. Sometimes we like to divide things between sacred and secular. They divide the world into clean things and unclean things. And if ever you were unclean or you came in contact with an unclean thing, then you were supposed to cleanse yourself from contact with those things. So going through this mikvah, this water that's going into the pool, made the participant completely clean inside and out. Not just physically, but it was a spiritual action as well. So this washing, it was all in preparation for worship. It was to do nothing less than to prepare a person for a holy encounter with a holy God. Some other reasons behind this, and I'll get into some detail just to you know, illustrate a certain point. Uh, this was a very common thing for the priests of the day to do because they got to be clean if they're you know, being in touch with God uh, so often as part of their daily lives. But also if uh, someone had like an infectious skin disease or even just some sort of skin condition, they would go through this. I'll read some from Leviticus for these uh, people with the skin issues. Uh, The persons being purified must then wash their clothes, shave off all their hair, and bathe themselves in water. Then they will be ceremonially clean and may return to the camp. However, 
They must remain outside their tents for seven days. On the seventh day, they must again shave all the hair from their heads, including the hair of the beard and eyebrows. They must also wash their clothes and bathe themselves in water. Then they will be ceremonially clean. Now, I share that to say, if you're reading this and hearing this, if you're like me, you're thinking, wow, that is very detailed, that is very specific, uh, that's a lot to keep track of, just very, very specific in how to go about this. And you know, the response would be, yeah, exactly, it is very detailed and specific. That just speaks to the level, that's how seriously they took approaching God. That's how seriously they took holiness. Some other instances, uh, if a woman had her period, she was required to participate in a mikvah. But most interesting here, for our purposes, kind of going in a certain direction, uh, the mikvah was done as a bride prepared for her wedding day. Keep that in mind, as a bride was preparing for her wedding day. Jumping to verse 16 in chapter 19. So on the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. And there was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain, so Moses climbed the mountain. So we have thunder and lightning, which is understandable because that's how God does his thing, right? It's, he just loves thunder and lightning. Can't get enough of it. When I'm reading through this, uh, you know, just if I read scripture, typically I'll find something to, uh, I don't know, laugh at, chuckle at, whatever. And I just see this, you know, this ram's horn being blasted. And I'm like, I, you know, if you look at my notes I have back in my office, I just have like, who is blowing this trumpet? And I'm just, you know, doing some study. It looks like God himself was blowing this, you know, ram's horn, this shofar, this trumpet. So, yeah, God has some instruments up in heaven with him, I guess. But this shofar, this ram's horn, we would say trumpet today, pretty similar, uh, was done to kind of announce a number of things. Uh, one thing, it was uh, blown to call an assembly, just kind of gather a group of people. Sometimes it was blown to prepare for war uh, or to celebrate something. But also, a ram's horn, or the shofar, was blown to announce a wedding ceremony. Once again, we'll keep this in mind. And this thick cloud over the mountain in verse 18, that also brings something to mind. Uh, the text implies sort of like this tent-like covering over the people of God. we got another Jewish word coming at us. In Jewish tradition, uh, this would make us think of what's called a chuppah. And it's an old movie, but if you ever remember seeing uh, Meet the Parents, they have one of those in there. It's the thing that Owen Wilson's character builds for Ben Stiller's character and his fiance. So it's the thing that blows up from that telephone wire. It's great. It's hilarious. Go watch it. But the purpose of this, think of it as like a, just a very small gazebo. It was erected for, by the groom for his bride as the place for their union where the vows would be exchanged. So we're starting to understand this imagery of this entire Sinai situation. We have the vows, we have the mikvah, the, you know, this cleansing as a bride would before her wedding ceremony, the shofar announcing a wedding ceremony, and this huppah, this tent-like covering where a wedding ceremony would actually take place, where vows would be exchanged. We get the picture. Here are the last five verses of this chapter. Then the Lord told Moses, go back down and warn the people not to break through the boundaries to see the Lord, or they will die. Even the priests who regularly come near to the Lord must purify themselves so that the Lord does not break out and destroy them. 
But Lord, Moses protested, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. You already warned us. You told me, mark off a boundary all around the mountain to set it apart as holy. But the Lord said, go down and bring Aaron back up with you. In the meantime, do not let the priests or the people break through to approach the Lord, or he will break out and destroy them. So Moses went down to the people and told them what the Lord had said. Now there's one more. There's this final aspect of the marriage covenant that we haven't discussed. This is called the ketubah. And uh, this ketubah, this is still an essential part of Jewish weddings today, and it has very, very ancient roots. Um, not surprisingly, women had very uh, limited rights in this time, in ancient times of history. And unfortunately, they could easily be divorced from their husbands and discarded, just so, so easily. So this ketubah, which is the Hebrew word just for writing, it kind of added, it acted as the wedding contract. So it provided some written rights that would protect the wife in her marriage if things just went south or did not work out. And this practice goes back you know, all the way to the 6th century B.C. So we get through this. You know, we have this writing. You know, God is saying, hey, here's, what's going to, here's the writing part. And we're going to go right into the Ten Commandments here. That ended at chapter 19. And chapter 20 is the reading, the giving of what these Ten Commandments are. The ketubah, the writing for this marriage ceremony. And it acts just like that ketubah. And one thing I like, just we, we, we kind of started off this way. I just like looking at uh, this um, giving of these written words to God's people in this particular way. Uh, it might be fun or interesting for us to think of that two to three month period after they've uh, escaped from Egypt right up until this moment at the base of Mount Sinai. It's kind of fun to imagine like kind of like a two to three month courtship between God and his people. You know, if we look at it as a marriage ceremony and sort of like an engagement, we see that God, he's not this demeaning deity that has a, his index finger coming out of the clouds and just, you know, being very disappointed in us. That's not what we see. Rather, he's this loving groom asking us to enter into a relationship with him. So these Ten Commandments, they're not, a, they're not expressions of do's and do nots. They're not expressions of legalism, but these are rather letters of love. If we look at these things like that, this becomes a whole lot more attractive and even accessible for us. We see that God loved Israel so much that he was ready and willing to go all in. And what he asked for return is obedience. And that same thing can be said for us today. Uh, you know, God extends, you know, this love and sacrifice and, you know, so on and so forth. And what he asks in return is for us to obey what he says, to obey his word. And we ought to obey and we should obey. We should want to obey, not out of obligation, but rather because we love him. Obedience is a whole lot easier when you love somebody. So with only love as a motivator, God tells his people what he wants. Uh, chapter 20, verse 1 through 3. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not have any other God but me. God reminds them who he is first, and then he reminds them what exactly he has done for them. And then he says, essentially, I want to be first in your life. I don't want anything else up there with me. I want to be number one in your life. Now, we've heard versions of that maybe our entire lives. It's like, yeah, God should be first. You know, he should be the center of our lives. We've heard this to some extent a lot. And it's always been true, but sometimes it can, uh, you know, you've heard something over and over for a long time. Sometimes you become uh, deaf to it. Or we start, you know, talking amongst ourselves like, well, what does that really mean? What's that really look like? And we might start making, you know, exceptions or allowances for ourselves. This has been going on for a long time. 
even in Jesus' day. Uh, we're going to read from Matthew 22, just a few verses. And just what's going on here is there are a bunch of really smart groups of people that have uh, Jesus not exactly cornered, but uh, they've come to Jesus you know, in public, and they want to trip him up. They want to make him sound like he doesn't know what he's talking about. And so they have a question about this. Here's how it goes in Matthew 22. When the Pharisees heard how he, Jesus, had bested the Sadducees, they gathered their forces for an assault. One of their religion scholars spoke for them, posing a question they hoped would show him up. Teacher, which command in God's law is the most important? And Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence. This is the most important, the first on any list. This is the most important, the first on any list. You look at Jesus' ministry, his actions, his words, everything he'd done. Jesus not only used his words to point us to God, but also by his very life, death, and resurrection was pointing to God himself. And through Jesus, we have access to God directly. We don't need a Moses to intercede for us. We don't need priests uh, to pray on our behalf. We don't need those, anyone to relay messages back and forth between us and God. That's one of the great things that Jesus' work has done. We have direct access to God. He's right there. Nothing in between us. And because of Jesus, we're going to do this uh, communion thing here pretty soon. So if you're on that team, that could be your cue. Uh, because of Jesus, we can know God. If ever I find myself doubting God's character, my first go-to is I look directly at Jesus. Because Jesus is the walking around, physical, emotional, mental, whatever. He is the complete embodiment of God's character, exactly who God is. If I need to be reminded who God is, what he's all about, I look at Jesus. That is the only place to look. And we have that assurance today. And I wanted to read this piece uh, from 1 John chapter 5, kind of going th- into this time with the, uh, with the line that the God who loves you wants to hold the most important place in your life. I'll read from 1 John 5. And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God, and he is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. I want to read that one again. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll do this communion. Let's all pray. Father, if we look at our lives and what you've done, so many of us can say that you have rescued us for something, you've saved us from something, you've taken us from uh, a certain identity and living a certain way through a desert of our own, and then we found ourselves completely uh, uh, the subject of your love. We know it's like to say, all right, God, I am yours, now what? And sometimes we just need uh, a reminder of exactly who you are, and sometimes we didn't need to do a heart check. Who has or what has the number one place in our hearts? Who has your place for us? So in this moment, as we also remember Jesus' actions and uh, Jesus saying, you know, that's, that's the place for me. I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything you have, that's what it's all about. That's what we're called to. So if nothing else, help us with this reminder. Help us do a heart check, a soul check, a gut check. We want this to be a holy moment, and we want it to be worth it, and we want this to be uh, 
a moment entirely with you and no one else. So help us with this. It's in Jesus' name we all pray together. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.